Father, this morning as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would just do something, Lord, that creates awe inside of our hearts. Lord, we're going to be looking specifically at your grace this morning. What is your grace? What does it mean that you are a gracious God? How have you shown us grace? We're going to be looking at that, Lord. And Father, I pray as we gaze upon it, I pray as we look at it and we try to understand it, and we try to seek to see how it applies to us, Lord, I pray that you would just, Lord, make us amazed. On one end, Lord, it seems too good to be true. On the other end, Lord, I think sometimes we're tempted to abuse it. But Lord, I just pray that as we look at this, that Father, you would just build up our faith. I pray you would help us to fall in love with you, Lord. If there are people here who are still not sure what they believe when it comes to you, Lord, I pray you would just give them, Lord, just a picture, a vision, something, Lord, of your love and your grace this morning. This prayer would click. So help us, Lord, to do that by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there is something. Uh, it's a, you know, an element. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something that is essential to life. Without this thing, there is no way to warm our environment. Without this thing, we have no way to cook our food. And for centuries, this thing was really the only way that we had light at nighttime. But as essential as this thing is to our life, it also must be respected. If it's misused, if it's abused, if it's not properly contained, if it's not carefully applied, this thing can literally destroy everything it touches. What am I talking about? Fire. 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 It's essential to life. Without that ball of fire in the sky, life on this planet does not exist. We know, though, as essential as it is, we know how, how destructive fire can be. Right? Channel, this is us flashbacks. Right? Fire must be respected. It must be carefully used. And if it's misused, if it's abused, it can destroy us. This morning, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about the grace of God because I think it's a lot like fire. The grace of God is absolutely essential to life. There is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no joy without the grace of God. But the grace of God, when abused or misapplied, can be so destructive. It could actually lead someone to believe that they are right with Almighty God when they're not. And here's why grace is so essential to us, yet we got to be so careful to not abuse it. Because the Bible says that every single human being, right, without distinction, Every human being has sinned against God. That's all of us. 
And we deserve, what we deserve for that sin is we deserve death, but not just a bodily death because God has created us with souls that are eternal. So it's not just physical death that we deserve, but God says that what we deserve for this is eternity apart from him, that that's the penalty. And the scriptures describe eternity apart from him as unending conscious torment what the scriptures call hell. And I hate preaching about hell because it's terrible. It's horrific, but it's truth found in God's word. But it's also exactly why the grace of God is so essential and why the grace of God can be so easily abused because it's only by the grace of God that we can escape what we deserve for our sin. I mean, the grace of God is the greatest news ever uttered to humanity because God is perfectly just. And at the very same time, he loves us so much. He makes a way by his grace where we can be forgiven of our sin and not have to fear the horrors of hell. And we can actually look forward to the joys of eternity with him. And that way that he makes is through Jesus. Jesus, the son of God, came, he lived a life as one of us, but without sin. And then he does this. He offers to switch lives with us. He goes to the cross, takes the punishment that we deserve for our sin, and then we get his righteous life. So when God looks upon us, if we trust in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Jesus He does not see the life that we've lived, right? There's no other way that we can be right with God. Uh, You can't be moral enough. You can't follow all the commandments enough. You can't go to church enough to earn God's favor. It's only through trusting the grace of God provided to us in and through Jesus, okay? And so here's the deal. This is substantive grace. God has not just decided to disregard our sins or to turn his back on them. No, he executed justice. He poured out his wrath upon our sins. But if you're in Christ, if you trust in Christ, that wrath and justice went on Jesus and not us. And so when we're talking about grace as the only way to escape the judgment that we deserve, you better believe it's essential you better believe that it is non-negotiable when it comes to the role that grace plays in our relationship with God. But you also better believe that some will try to abuse the greatest news ever uttered to humanity. And here's how sometimes we see it play out. Think of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have, you know, kind of fundamentalist, legalist type churches that acknowledge the work of Jesus on the cross and the grace of God is kind of the start of the Christian life. But then what you do is you kind of leave grace at the door and keep on living. And the rest of the Christian life is just about following the rules, making sure you're good enough, check all the boxes, work hard to prove that you actually are righteous and that you do deserve to go to heaven. On the other end of the spectrum, You have maybe some more liberal churches that take the grace of God and use that as an excuse 
Or they use it as a way to minimize our sin and reinforce the idea that God accepts you exactly as you are, as you are, which he does, but he doesn't desire you to really change. Both are an abuse of grace and both are destructive. One is cold, dead religion, and the other is just an excuse to keep living the way we've always lived. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is that as followers of Christ, the only way that we can grow in holiness and the only way that we can experience true life change is in the context of grace. We've been in a series in Ephesians 4 entitled Called to Belong, and we've been talking about how every follower of Jesus is called to belong to a local church. And in this last paragraph of Ephesians 4, which we're entering into, we're studying that a biblically faithful local church is filled with people who are experiencing true life change. And so last week, Nick preached out of Ephesians 4, 17 to 24 for us, and he helped us to see very clearly that as followers of Jesus, we are called to holiness. We're called to see change in our life from our old sinful ways to what God has said is good and right in his word. I mean, that's very clear if you look at verses 22 to 24, which Nick taught us on last week, but it says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So God desires for us to change. God desires to see growth in holiness in our lives. And so this morning, I want to show all of us that this kind of change in our life, growing in holiness, can only happen in the context of grace. And with that, there are two warnings we need to heed. You know, when you're trying to seek to change in your life, you're trying to grow in holiness. There are things you want to improve on in your life. We're tempted to do one of two things. I've already alluded to them. We might be tempted to take the grace of God and leave it at the door and make your whole Christian life about just following all the rules and being as good as possible. And that's really your religion, right? That's what it means to be a Christian is just try to check all the boxes. Or we might be tempted to abuse grace and use it as an excuse to live my life the way that I'm living it and not really see a need for change in my life, right? We'll maybe disregard God's true attitude towards our sin. But I think Paul, he helps us to understand that it's exactly because of God's grace and the fact that we've been set free from our sin it's that very thing that actually provokes us towards change. So in this final paragraph of Ephesians 4, which is verses 25 to 32, that's this last chunk of scripture we're going to be in. What Paul's going to do is he's going to give very specific and practical advice to the church on how the whole church helps each other grow in holiness. All right, most of that chapter or that paragraph, rather, we're going to deal with next week. Okay, so we'll handle that next week. This morning, I just want to look at one verse. That's verse 28. Ephesians 4, 28. One simple, small verse, because I think in this verse, 
we get a simple vision for what true life change looks like and how it's only possible in the context of grace. Look at this verse, verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Very simple, very simple example. But what I think we see in verse 28 is three simple stages in the process of change. We're trying to grow. We wanna change in a direction that's obedient to God's word. I think we see three simple stages in this verse. And I think we see how it's only possible in the context of grace. And so let's break those three stages down. Here's the first stage. It's confession. Stage number one is confession. When there is sin in our life, then we've been commanded by God to seek to repent from that sin. All right, so this is what that looks like. That means recognizing that sin, calling it for what it is, all right? And it also means to stop doing it, all right? It's very simple. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. He recognizes the sin. He stops doing it, right? So it's not, it's not rocket science, but as simple as the concept is to recognize areas in our life that need to change and to stop doing those things, it proves to be more difficult than we think, at least if you're like me. And the reason for that is all of us would rather go through the process of change in isolation and without the knowledge or help of anyone else, right? Because we get embarrassed by the areas in our life that need to improve. So this is exactly why this first stage of confession of our sin can only effectively happen in the context of grace. Now, I realize I need to define what I mean by context of grace. So let's pause for a second. Let me define this for us. Every single person on this planet is either under the grace of God or is under the condemnation of God. Every person. Either their sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus and God has forgiven them by his grace or they're still going to pay for their sins because they have not trusted Christ yet and their sins have not been forgiven. And the scriptures tell us that something happens in our hearts, okay? So something that goes on in here in our hearts when we place our faith in Jesus and we cross over from being under grace, or I'm sorry, from being under condemnation to being under grace. In that crossover, something happens to our hearts. The Bible tells us that God takes our old heart and he replaces it with a new heart. And whereas our old heart had no love for God, no regard for his glory, and only cared about ourselves, our new heart has been transformed under the grace of God to now have a new love for God and his glory. Our identity has changed from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of God. And our hearts reflect this new identity as we now have a love for God. Now, here's the thing. It might be a really small love, right? Sometimes our behavior and our thoughts don't match our identity. It might be a small love, but it's there. And the fundamental difference between a true Christian and a non-Christian is the Christian is under grace and by God's grace has been given a new heart with a love for God. Here's why this is important. You know, I have a deep love for my wife and my kids. Like just a deep 
love for them. But sadly, there are times that my behavior does not reflect that. I can be harsh. I can be sarcastic, passive aggressive towards them. But the fact that I can behave in a way that does not reflect my love does not mean that the love is not there. But you know what? I hate it that I can do that. I hate the fact that my behavior doesn't always reflect how much I love my wife and my kids. And you know what? I want to change. I want that to change in my life. And this is the point. My deep love for my family gives me a deep hatred for my sin against them. I hate that I sin against them. And in the same way, the Christian's love for God produces a hatred for our sin. We're gonna sin against God. There are areas of our life that need to change. And this love of God that we have produces a hatred for that sin and a desire to change. Not because of rules, not because we're afraid God's gonna transfer us from grace back to condemnation, not because we wanna impress our church friends. No, the desire to change comes from the fact that we love God and we wanna honor him, we wanna glorify him, all right? And this motivation towards change that is fueled by our love for God and our hatred of sin can only happen in a context of grace. I mean, if we're seeking to change in a context of condemnation, then our motivation is not a love for God, it's a love of self, right? It's self-preservation, so, so a biblically faithful local church is filled with people experiencing real life change because a biblically faithful local church should reinforce the reality that as Christians, we're under grace. We should remind each other that we are under grace and we should help each other change precisely because we are under grace. And so here's the thing, we have to understand this. True Christians are people who are changing. Some of us are newer to the faith, our love of God is present, but maybe it's small, and we're seeking to grow and change. Some of us have been following Jesus for a lot longer. Our love for God has grown. We've seen a lot of change in our life, and we have more change to go. But we're all the same as being under God's grace. And so that's what I mean by context of grace, okay? And so these stages of change can only happen in that context. So let's get back to confession, because this is critical here. When we have a love for God and a hatred of our sin, and we belong to a local church that promotes a context of grace, then we're gonna gladly welcome the criticism of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're gonna gladly welcome their help in us identifying areas in our life that needs to change. We'll gladly welcome the help in the process of confessing our sin. Look at verse 25, Ephesians 4, 25. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth, the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we're members of one another. We're under grace together. We're following Jesus together. And so we welcome the help from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do that because we love God. And so when someone else can help me see my sin in my life, they're helping me better love God and they're helping me uh, get rid of the sin that I hate. 
But remember our warnings. When we're seeking to grow in holiness and change in our life, we might be tempted to leave grace at the door and make the Christian life all about the rules. And when we subscribe to that cold, dead religion, all we're doing is behavior control. And that doesn't grow our love for God. And that does not contribute to our joy. But we might also be tempted to abuse grace and use grace as the very reason why we don't need to change. We might even accuse people who lovingly confront us about our sin for not being gracious. But that kind of grace does not grow our love for God. It's just putting Christian language on our love for ourselves. It's cheap grace. It's destructive to the church. I actually, I saw this quote this morning um, it's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian. This is what he says. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sins. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. True grace of God provokes us to change and it provokes us to welcome the help from our church in that process of change. And that starts with confession. The grace of God provides the context through which we're motivated to confess our sin and seek change. And you know, I, I think it's easy, if I'm honest, I think it's easy for us to abuse grace and almost think of grace as if God is, just has a cavalier attitude about our sin. Almost as if we picture God saying, you know what? You guys are all struggling down there. You're trying so hard. Don't worry about it. You're under grace. There's no reason to fret. But that's not God's attitude towards sin. Listen, grace does not minimize sin. If anything, it maximizes sin because it tells us that Jesus Christ, the only innocent man in history, had to be tortured and pierced on a cross in our place. God is not cavalier about sin because he's not cavalier about his son. It's not a light matter to him, but the gospel shows us that he's also not cavalier about his love towards us. And if that does not provoke inside of us a love for God and a hatred of our sin and a motivation to change for his glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that's been shown to us through what he did, if that doesn't provoke and desire to change, I don't know what will. So in our text this morning, the, the first stage of, is confession. And then the second stage we're gonna see here is effort. If you look at verse 28 again, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So the example given in the text speaks of someone who stopped stealing and he started doing something the opposite, doing honest labor. So when we talk about growing in holiness and seeking to change from our sinful ways, the conversation can't just be negative, right? You can't just focus on stopping, but there has to be intentional effort in the other direction, Right? We need to strive to do something positive. So if you struggle with gossiping in the workplace, you can't just focus on not gossiping and tearing down other people. You need to put effort towards speaking well of other people. Right? If you struggle with coveting the life and possessions and money of the people around you, 
You can't just focus on not coveting those things. You need to put effort towards having gratitude for what you do have, right? So here's the thing, putting effort towards doing something opposite of the sin that we struggle with only works in the context of grace. Think about it. If we decide to leave grace at the door and and embrace cold, dead religion, fundamentalist religion, then what is the motivation behind this effort? The motivation will be to try to appease the wrath of God. It will be to try and prove to those around us that our faith is genuine. It will be about saving face, uh, maintaining a reputation. On the other side, if we decide to abuse grace and use it as a way of minimizing our sin, then we simply won't be motivated to change when it gets hard and we have setbacks. It'll be too easy to throw in the towel and begin coming up with reasons why the effort is not worth it. But when we understand the substantive grace of God for what it really is and that God does desire for us to change and he has placed us under grace so that we can change, then this fuels a willpower okay, a willpower that's not fueled by fear or condemnation or the need to prove ourselves to God or others. No, this fuels a willpower that's fueled by love and a gratitude for God, a willpower fueled by the grace of God. Striving to change under the grace of God is entirely different than striving to change under the condemnation of God. Completely different things. And so this is critical. When we have a love for God, a hatred of our sin, and we are a part of a local church that promotes a context of grace, then we will gladly welcome the help and accountability from our brothers and sisters as we seek to put effort towards change. And we welcome the help. We welcome people asking us how things are going. We welcome people walking side by side with us in the change. We welcome people giving us a pep talk we want to throw in the towel. This isn't about condemning one another. This isn't about kicking people out from grace and into condemnation. No, we're all under grace. So this is about loving one another and helping each other change. And so back to our text, the first stage is confession, the second stage is effort. And the final stage we'll see here in verse 28 is transformation. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I mean, this is a change at the heart level, at the motivational level. This person is no longer focused on taking from others for himself. He is focused on working hard so he can give to others. This is true transformation, not just when our behavior is different, but when our desires and our motivations are different. And you know what? Getting to the place where the desires and the motivations of our heart is changing, guess what? It can only happen in the context of grace. See, the Bible has a way of taking all of our sin, every bit of it, and funneling it down to this one singular condition of the heart. Romans 1.25 says, the essence of sin is that all of us as humankind have begun to worship and serve the things that God created instead of worshiping and serving God alone, namely ourselves. So in other words, sin is the reality that we love ourselves more than we love God or others. 
And we live for ourselves more than we live for God and others. So that's exactly why the Bible says that all of God's commands and laws are summed up in the command to love God and love your neighbor. So if you look at our thief here in Ephesians 4, he used to steal. He would take from others for himself, but now transformation has occurred and now he's living to give and love others. So, so here's the deal. If we decide to leave grace at the door and embrace cold, dead religion, and all of the Christian life is about proving to God and others that we are righteous and we're worthy, then our hearts have never really changed in the first place. We're still living for ourselves. Maybe our behavior is changing, but the inclinations of our heart is the same. And to God, that's all sin. If we decide to abuse grace and use it to minimize our sin, then again, all of our Christian life is about how I want to live. I'm living for myself. My heart hasn't changed. I've just started to use Christian language to make it sound better. So true heart transformation, where the desires and motivations of our heart begin to change, can only happen in the context of grace. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, he says, Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but that we would change and live for him. But how does a context of grace provoke that kind of transformation in our hearts. Thomas Chalmers is famous for saying that the only way to get rid of an old sinful desire in our heart is through the expulsive power of a new desire. In other words, our hearts need to be captivated by our love for God more than it's captivated by our love for ourselves. And at the end of the day, the pathway to true change in our lives is through the heart. And we talked about gossip earlier. It's going to be difficult for you to change that habit and put effort towards something new if you're not addressing how self-focused your heart is, right? To the one who gossips, other people are objects to be used for self-promotion. If you struggle with coveting the money, possessions, and life of other people, it's going to be hard to address that constant feeling of inadequacy in your heart if you're not addressing the selfish reflexes of your heart. To the one who covets people or competition. If you struggle with sin, which is all of us, God and every person around us is reduced to our servants. That's what sin does to us. And it's wicked. And only grace has the explosive power to expel that selfishness out of our hearts. And here's how it works. Because when we have a love for God, and hatred for our sin, and we belong to a church that promotes a context of grace, we will gladly allow our hearts to be exposed in all of its nasty motivations and desires. And as the wickedness and evil of our hearts are laid bare to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are recipients of the same grace that we are, you know what's gonna happen? The body of Christ, it's gonna take the grace that they've all received from God and they're gonna minister it to you. They're gonna love you. 
forgive you, be gracious to you in the same way that God has been gracious to them and in the same way the church has been gracious to them as well. They are gonna take your sins seriously and they're gonna call you to change, but they're gonna accept you and love you and be committed to you. And when your heart expects to be rejected, when it expects to be judged, when it expects to be marginalized, when it expects to be condemned because it's been exposed with all of its wickedness, since you're in the church, the kingdom of God, the love and grace of the bride of Christ is gonna shock your system. And piece by piece, as you experience the grace of God minister to you through your brothers and sisters, as you allow your heart to be exposed, piece by piece, that's gonna chip away at the selfishness of your heart. And more and more, a love for God is gonna grow. A love for God and a hatred of your sin. You can't, your heart can't go through this kind of transformation in the context of condemnation. Where we're just trying to outdo one another, check every box, perform, right? We're just trying to gain the applause of people. Listen, we're all sinners and we have stuff that needs to change in our life. We all need this. There's no hierarchy in this. And it can only happen in the context of the real substantive grace of God. So let me ask you, everyone here, are you under the grace of God? Have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Because if you have, you are under grace. You're under grace, never to leave. And grace provokes you to change. Not so you can stay saved, not so you can impress God, but because God is good and he's after your joy. So where do you need to change? Are you weighed down by the weight of your sin and constant struggle to Please God, because you've left grace at the door. I mean, if that's you, you need to share that with people here, with people that you trust around here. You need to share that with your brothers and sisters and let them build you up in the truth that is you, that you are under God's grace, that Jesus suffered in your place so you don't have to, that you are a son and daughter of God and that God wants you to change because he loves you and he cares for you. Are you appealing to cheap grace as an excuse for your sin? Do you look to grace as a way of, I don't really need to change. It's okay. If that's you, you've completely missed grace. The grace of God that you believe in is nowhere near as radical as the actual grace of God. Now's the time to confess that and to begin to bring the issues to the surface so that you can begin to pursue change in your life. Let the, your brothers and sisters in Christ minister the real grace of God that will provoke change and guess what? Lead you to joy. I promise you the cheap stuff is not as good as you think. It's playing with fire. And so this morning, we, what we're gonna do as a church body is we're gonna, Sharing communion with one another. Because communion is a way that we remember the real grace of God. 
the actual grace of God, because it's a way for us to remember what Christ did for us that we may be forgiven of our sin. And so when we take communion, what we do is we take bread and we break it. And we're reminded of how the body of Christ was broken in our place so that we wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God. That's grace. And when we take the juice and we're reminded of the blood of Jesus and how it was shed on the cross so that we could be cleansed from our sin. And we're reminded that when God looks on us, he sees righteousness. That when we're ultimately judged, we'll be judged as one who is righteous. But in this life, he still wants us to change for our good and his glory. And so if you're a Christian this morning, if you believe in what Jesus did on the cross and you trust your whole life to Jesus, then after I pray, go to the communion table and grab some bread and grab some juice. Go back to your seat. And I just want you to take a moment to reflect on the grace of God in and through Jesus. I want you to reflect on the fact that because of what these things symbolize that you're holding in your hand, you are under grace. You have nothing to fear when it comes to the judgment of God. You're not under condemnation. And as you allow your heart to rest in that truth, allow your heart to confess to the Lord where change needs to happen in your life because the grace of God provokes change. And it's all for his glory and it's all for your joy. Let me also say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you still don't know what you believe when it comes to Jesus yet. I want to ask you not to come to the communion table because this is for people who believe in what these things represent. But I just want to say to you, if this is you, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's out of love for you that I say you're under God's condemnation, not his grace. But this morning, that can change. It can change this morning by praying to God from the honesty of your heart and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know everything's not right with me. And I also know that if all of the responsibility for me to change and live a righteous life was all on me, that I would fail utterly. The only hope I have is your grace. I trust in Jesus. I trust in what he did for me on my behalf and I want to live my life under grace and no longer under condemnation. If that's you, you can pray right now and that becomes a reality for you. So I'm going to pray. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for all of us. And when I'm done, you can come forward and you can take of the elements. We have two stations on either side of me. Let's pray. Father, your grace is so good. It's so good because it's real. It's not a fairy tale. Jesus, you came and you stood in our place and you purchased us for yourself. You made a way that we could be saved from our sin. And we praise you. 
Father, we just pray that as we come forward as a church and we take of the bread and we take of the juice, that, Lord, you would just minister to our hearts assurance that we're under your grace. If there's anyone in here that's been struggling with condemnation, they've professed belief in Christ, but they just struggle because there's sin in their life and it's just so hard to change, Lord. Would you encourage their hearts this morning that they're under grace, that Christ has covered it, and they're free to live their life seeking to change, seeking to glorify you, and they have a family who wants to help. Would you encourage their hearts this morning, Lord? If there's anyone here who appeals to cheap grace as their excuse to not have to change, Lord, would you help them to realize that the grace that they're drinking is cheap? It's nothing. And would you encourage their hearts with the real grace of God? Would you encourage their hearts with the possibility of real change in their life that's for your glory and for their joy? And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you and they haven't trusted in you yet, Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would soften their hearts right now. And that, Lord, they could just drink from your grace for the first time. And you would flood their hearts with the encouragement that only the gospel can bring and the assurance and the security that only the gospel can bring. We love you, Father. Pray that as we take these elements and sing to you, that you'd be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.